Hi, this is Robert Cahoon and welcome to The Pulse. We've got a fascinating author today. Uh, we are looking at Daniel O'Connor's new book, Thy Will Be Done. Um, Daniel, uh, as he describes himself on his blog, we've done one interview before, um, he says he is in order of importance, a simple, unworthy servant of our Lord Jesus Christ, a loving child, willing, concentrated slave of the Blessed Virgin Mary, loyal son of the church, husband of his amazing wife, Regina, uh, father of four children, Do Joseph, David, Mary and Louisa, uh, by her fifth on the way. Perhaps that's that's already happened. Maybe that's slightly out of coming up, Coming up in a few months. November. Oh, wow. Very good. <laughs> and a worker of many apostolates, uh, especially promoting the divine will and divine mercy. But he's also a philosophy professor um, in New York um, Community College and also has an MA in theology and um, studying or completing the PhD in philosophy. Still work, still work. Still, still working. I know how long it takes to complete a, <laughs> a few, a uh, few more centuries and I'll have it. A few yeah. more centuries. Um, <laughs> so I just really want to recommend the incredible book that Daniel has written. It's called Thy Will Be Done. And it is on the, uh, Our Father, the greatest prayer, the Christian's mission, the world's penultimate destiny is the subtitle. There's five uh, different sections to this book. Um, and I've really enjoyed reading it. The first chapter is really on the Our Father and the promise to call it the greatest prayer, the Our Father, Jesus' prayer to his Father. The part two is about the divine will and sacred tradition, seeing how the divine will goes in conformity with the history and the tradition of the church from St. Uh, Alfonso Liguri to St. Francis de Sales to the Marian consecration, St. Teresa of Lisieux. Um, and abandonment to divine providence, de Cassard, and um, many other authors throughout um, salvation history, uh, how the divine will is really in conformity with all those writers and authors and is of the same tradition. Part three is um, about the crown of sanctity, new and divine holiness, 20th century mysticism. So it talks quite a lot about uh, Saint Conchita and also Saint Faustina, as well as other 20th century mystics. Um, Maximilian Kolbe, so it just takes you through a 101 from 20th century mystics in that part as well, and also the importance of private revelation. Um, part four is all about Louisa Picaretta, um, without quoting her work, goes through about her life, um, circumstances in which she lived, and her message in a nutshell, um, how important it is to us for the gift, renounce self-will, etc. And part five is about the era of peace. Um, so why the era, the era in scripture as well as the fathers and in 20th century private revelation. And the appendices, um, there's a great bit about proclaiming the divine will for priests and then also um, answering any sort of questions or concerns about private revelation, how it's not millennialism um, and many other sort of heresies, etc. So how it conforms with spiritual tradition of the church. So Daniel, it's a real honor to have you on um, today. We've done one interview before, but how, how are you today? Very well, thanks be to God. Very, very happy over here in the States. We just had Roe v. Way overturned. So that's a little foretaste of the era that part, uh, you know, the, the last part of the book is about. We're feeling very happy about that. Much more Abs work to do. but <laughs> Absolutely. The best moment in the history of the pro-life movement, 50, mm -hmm. 50 mm -hmm. years. Um, absolutely incredible. And it also gives a lot of hope. And yes. yeah, you know, you bet. So there's a whole chapter on the year of peace in, in your book as well. And, you know, what, what a time to be, uh, what a time to be alive. And I've read both of your previous books, um, The Crown of Sanctuary, The Crown of History. They're both absolutely incredible. And this, this book is 
on the same level as as that um what compelled you to write this particular book and you know what's unique and special about this book for, for me it was um putting the divine will in context not only mm -hmm. of the 20th century of private re the importance of private revelation um, but also how it is in conformity with all the tradition of the church and seeing uh, you, what you do really powerfully is you provide the context um for louise's writing in a really special way without going into her writings um you, you just say look you know here's the tradition of the church and here is how 20th century private revelation really fits in well to uh right. well to everything that we've learned before so so what was the reason what what was the why behind the book and why did you feel called to write it yeah and i touched upon each of those themes in in the earlier books by the way if you read the old crown of sanctity you just <laughs> you you were just delivered from a lot of purgatory time door, by, make, stopper, by making yeah. it through that that huge one but um definitely yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's that's something i just that's uh but if um so I, I touched upon the same themes in each of the books, but in this one, I really wanted to focus on, on what you mentioned there with putting this in the context of our sacred tradition as Catholics. And I was thinking about how I myself was introduced to the divine will. Explicitly, I was I was introduced to Louisa um, uh, 11 or so years ago, you know, when I just by providence walked into a retreat thinking i was just going to mass walked into a retreat and louisa the exact same thing happened to me several months later more more and more signs after that and god just made it unbelievably clear to me that this was my calling but actually i was devote i was introduced to this same spirituality the same devotion years before when i stumbled upon saint alphonsus Ligori's uniformity with god's will and i was uh you know i had I've always been Catholic, but I had a major reawakening to the faith in college after a time of much sinfulness. And um, that one short work from St. Alphonsus Liguori, Uniformity with God's Will. I had never heard of Luisa Picaretta at this point. I was just in, I was in college um, working on my engineering degree. And this, I was in a, in a major phase of trying to grow in, in, in holiness, trying to grow closer to our Lord, going to adoration all the time. And when I stumbled upon this book, I wish I could remember how exactly I stumbled upon it, but I was utterly convicted after reading it that this short work, Uniformity with God's Will, I was just convicted, and I know this came from God himself. This is the key. This is it. This is the pinnacle. This is the summit. This is the single principle that makes sense of everything else. And the extraordinary things that St. Alphonsus, he's not only a saint, but a doctor of the church, meaning he's one of the very few. You know, we got thousands and thousands of canonized saints, but we've, we've only got a few dozen um, doctors. I can't remember the exact number, maybe 36 at the moment. But this uh, proposition he gave, that uniformity with God's will is, frankly, everything in a single sentence. That simplicity, I absolutely needed. And I think that more people need that. We, 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 we're both simple and complex. But we can't ever leave one or the other. You know, the, there's so much to learn about the faith. There's and there's so many books bringing us into a deeper understanding of the faith, and they're all great. Uh, well, most of them are great, hopefully. Um, but what about what's the true essence and core and pinnacle of it all? If you think about the the virtues, there's so many virtues. You could have books and books and books on the various virtues. And I'm sure they'd all be wonderful. And we should continue to learn about the various virtues. But there also comes a point where you maybe sit back and say, 
this is a lot of stuff. I, I need a single principle to make sense of all of this, all, all the virtues. And thankfully we have that love, love, as our Lord said in the gospel, you know, this is the law and the prophets love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So the virtues have kind of one principle that makes sense of all of them. And that doesn't in the least detract from the importance of working on each and every virtue and growing understanding of them, but it does give a coherence to them and a charismatic kind of zeal to it that we need that simplicity as well. And I asked the same question about the faith in general. What is that one thing, that one proposition, that one premise, that one sentence that gives an, a rock solid coherence to everything with the faith in general, not just the virtues. And that one thing is the fiat, the climax of the one and only prayer our Lord taught, thy will be done, uniformly with God's will, how? On earth as in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as, it ha- as in heaven. And where else? And it just so happens, where else would we look to find the key to everything about the faith? And, and, and as Christians, we're, the faith is supposed to permeate everything in our lives. So this is also the key to our whole lives. Where else would we look but the very climax of the one and only prayer that Jesus himself taught, the Our Father? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I didn't come up with this idea that that's the climax of the Our Father. I'm, as you'll see, if, if you look at the book, I'm just drawing from actually holy people. <laughs> if I've ever written anything good, it's because I quote a lot of holy people. And as you'll see, I, I just have saint after saint and doctor after doctor, fathers and mystics. And uh, I'm trying to bring it all together in, in, in between two covers. Now, um, most Christians, when they're praying the Our Father, you know, really... Uh, just rolling off the Our Father, they don't really consider Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven mm-hmm. as a prophecy, as something that will be fulfilled. They're not thinking about that particular line at a deeper level. Right. Um, and certainly, the first chapter of your book, you really, you really draw open, draw open the Our Father in a much deeper way and relate it to to that realization. You know, and that you know, if we if we do God's will at a much deeper level in everything we think, say, and do, and that beautiful discovery that you found in, say, Amphalsus Liguri, you know, there's so many amazing wow moments in, in Christianity, just a mm-hmm. discovery of something new that you you never found, but, you know, this is huge, and you talk about the simplicity of, of the faith and bringing things down to a nutshell, but then there's just, you know, such a huge array of huge array of mystics and saints and doctors of the church it's you know it's like it can get overwhelming right yeah it can be it can be overwhelming and i love the way it's understandable yeah i love the way you write in you know some some parts in bold um some parts in bold and the emphasis is is really beautiful my granny used to send me newspaper clippings and uh they they had lots of red uh red borrow marks but red borrow marks on them and it's it's beautiful how you emphasize different parts from Mm -hmm. from the saints and there's so much packed in this book as well it's so original um, original the way that you you bring up um, tell us a bit about saint uh, conchita because i knew very little about saint conchita um prior to reading this book i knew quite a lot about saint fastina yes um, but saint, amazing. Saint, she's one saint of my conchita favorites is amazing tell us a bit about saint conchita and she's so she's actually blessed right now i'm sure she'll be saint very soon yeah but um mm-hmm. it was actually just um trying to remember uh, i think it was 2019 and she was declared blessed and this is huge obviously what I'm leading up to throughout the book is Luisa's revelation. She's a servant of God, which is a big deal, but blessed is a couple levels higher. So with blessed Mm -hmm. Conchita, 
she was a, a contemporary of Luisa. She also lived in the 20th century. She was Mexican. Um, we have the same sanctity revealed. And I'll, I'll just throw out there, look, I, I completely agree that Luisa's, that Jesus's words to Luisa are the crown of all these revelations. But I also believe that the same basic thing is revealed, like as soon as it's available, as soon as God decided now is the time this sanctity is available, why wouldn't he speak of it to all of the souls, many, of, if not all of the souls that he directly reveals things to. And Blessed Conchito is certainly one of them. Um, let's see, I've got my book here with a couple bookmarks in it. Let's see if I, if I, uh, oh, okay, there it is. So I talk about St. Faustina and Blessed Conchita in part three, and I'm looking at page 80 now. So Blessed Conchita, she had this extraordinary experience in 1906. And I'll emphasize the dates here just because it's important to recognize where things happened in relation to Luisa's life. And Luisa, it's often agreed that her reception of the, this thing called the gift of living in the divine will, that that happened in probably 1889. And some would argue the details, but either way, it was around the dawn of the 20th century, certainly before 1906. So blessed uh, Conchita, she's across the ocean. She's a continent away in Mexico. She has no idea who Luisa is. She's never heard of Luisa, but she is an extraordinary mystic. And she's under the spiritual direction of another extraordinary mystic, servant of God, Archbishop Louis Martinez. These, these saints often come in pairs, like Luisa, her spiritual director was Saint Hannibal de Francia. Um, the, uh, the, so what Jesus told Blessed Conchita is that there is this new grace available. This is for everyone, but he's actualizing it first in the souls of a few extraordinary people, Blessed Conchita being one of them. And what he called it, what he named it for Blessed Conchita was the mystical incarnation. So it's as if Jesus is living in us in a, in a really comparable way that he was living in the Blessed Virgin Mary himself. The incarnation, of course, didn't happen for, at first at Christmas, that's when it was revealed to the world. It happened nine months earlier at the incarnate, the, uh, the Annunciation. So this is mystical. We, of course, don't literally receive the physical, you know, in, incarnation in, in our, and in, in our body, not, you know, we're men, we don't have wombs anyway, but the, we, we can receive the grace that actually invites the real presence of Jesus into our acts. And that's what this mystical incarnation is. And before I quote Conchita herself, I want to quote Father Marie Michel Philippon, because I'm I don't propose to discover anything new on my own. I my job, I think, is to introduce, to invite, and to quote much holier people than myself. Father Marie Michel Philippon is a Dominican theologian, extraordinary theologian. In fact, he proved his his insight, I would say, by being one of the most zealous promoters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity before she was even a servant of God. And she's yet another mystic of the 20th century who had extraordinary uh, claims. And he had the insight to look at her writing, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and realize this is really from our Lord. This is authentic. This is true mysticism here. And he advocated for her. And now, of course, we know that it's authentic. She's a canonized saint. So he was also absolutely uh, convicted of the authenticity of Conchita. And 
she's blessed now. And that's, that's, a, that's an assurance. I mean, search the whole history of the church. You will never find a blessed mystic whose, whose fundamental revelation in her mysticism was a fraud. Like you will never, that's never happened and it never will happen. So this new holiness, it's, it's assured now from blessed Conchita, father, Philippon, this great theologian, he's quoted in the New Catholic Encyclopedia time and time again. He's a, he's a real master. He said, we are incontestably in a new era of spirituality. And he wrote that, uh, I, I believe the year was 1976, and he was just reviewing a bunch of what Jesus said to Blessed Conchita. He said, we are in a new era. We, that's incontestable right now. You can't even deny it. And he concluded that just by Blessed Conchita's revelations. And she's just one of many. And, and she just gives, I mean, it's extraordinary, Blessed Conchita, that you could spend your life diving into this. She's got thousands of pages of mysticism as well. But even Blessed Conchita is just kind of a, like an a introduction to Louisa. Same basic holiness revealed. But anyway, what Blessed Conchita, and I just, I'll just look at one quote maybe from Blessed Conchita because it, it really proves that we are in something new here. She was told by Jesus, I'm looking for the quote itself, oh, here it is. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the pivotal moment of her life was at, fittingly, the Feast of the Annunciation, I believe it was, in 1906. Jesus came to her and had a conversation with her. And she wrote, My soul, empty of all else, I received Jesus in communion. And then he said to her, here I am. I want to incarnate myself mystically in your heart. And she responded in a way we would actually anticipate if we knew the spiritual tradition of the church. She said, would this be, my Jesus, spiritual marriage? This, is, this, is a, this might seem like a minor point, but this is essential. Spiritual marriage or mystical marriage, this has always been regarded by the, by, by the tradition of the church as the pinnacle of what we refer to as the unitive way of the spiritual life, which is the highest, it had always been thought, this was never a church teaching or anything. This had, this had just, it had always been kind of assumed and even proposed that this mystical marriage, this spiritual marriage, also called the transforming union, was the pinnacle of the spiritual life. It was as high as you could get on earth. So when Kinchita hears Jesus say that, that I want to incarnate myself mystically in your heart. She understandably assumes, okay, so you mean mystical marriage? Jesus responds. He says, no, much more than that. He says, this is the grace of incarnating me, of living and growing in your soul, never to leave it, to possess you and to be possessed by you as one in the same substance, in a compenetration which cannot be comprehended. The grace of graces a union of the same nature as that of the union of heaven, except that in paradise, heaven, the veil disappears. This is exactly what Jesus is telling Louisa. And what else does it remind you of? The Our Father. How Absolutely. is God's will to be done on earth as in heaven? I think for me, just the realization that there's so much more to holiness. I mean, in 2020, it was, you know, that everything was shut. Um, suddenly everything taken away from, from my life and then a sudden realization that wow there's so much more to faith and there's so much more to our relationship with God and it's not just sort of 
ordinary holiness like there's a real depth that I, at that point i was missing in my life and suddenly discovery of divine will was just you know wow there's so much more and there's so much depth as well and there's so many similarities between um louisa and sister faustina as well of mm. just the, the spiritual journey that they were on of being rejected at first to right. um a- any private revelation you know must go through a period of not you know prior to sort of church acceptance as well so but given saint hannibal has a statue in the vatican and 19 volumes are you know imprimatur um father Ianuzzi's dissertation the entire which is essentially a summary of the entire of louisa's teaching has church approval as well you know it's it's very much uh wow just what your book really does is um it provides the context for me for, for living in the divine will and um you know how how is louisa picaretta's writings in conformity with sacred tradition and church history as well this is kind of um chapter two in your book too just you know how this is not something new it's not something you know um unapproved sort of revelation it's it's really in conformity with what what everyone was has been saying and i think uh, when you get that when you understand that and you don't quote from louisa's writings in the book at all you paraphrase them i think um Mm -hmm. you don't directly quote quote from them do tell us why why that is and and show us how her teachings are in conformity with the the history of the church absolutely yeah so you know i've been i've um been i've known of the divine will for over a decade now and i've been promoting it for i don't know seven six or seven years something like that and uh it's been it's been very fruitful i've been watching the divine will spread throughout the world and it's and it's wonderful but i've also noticed that there seems to be a bit of a brick wall that you hit with some people who just won't touch anything that they deem not yet fully approved if there's any little potential issue with some revelation they won't touch it yeah and I, what I wanted to say is, okay, I can play that game. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the same message and I won't quote it. I won't <laughs> even touch the revelations themselves. I'll just show you how this is unavoidably the result of 2,000, well, really more than 2,000, but especially the last 2,000 years of preparation, how it's perfectly in conformity with everything that's been taught so far. And um, I wanted to provide a resource, namely this book, so that there could be no more excuse anymore up up until this book i i guess you could you, some catholic could say oh no you know there's a moratorium on the revelations themselves or she's only a servant of god well, only a servant of god what's that supposed to mean but um or or some or, or come up with some other excuse and i wanted to pre- to provide something that even the most cautious catholic you could possibly stumble upon would have no excuse to not give this a try um, and that's what my I'm, I'm attempting to do with this book. And the um, and, it, it, you know, it's painful for me to 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 not be able to quote Louisa, but I wanted to hold myself to that just again. So I could make sure that there is no excuse that this can be handed to any Catholic and they'll have no justification to have any qualms with reading this. There's, there's uh, some there's a few things about the Catholic faith, you know, you know, such as the miracle of the sun. Seventy thousand people saw that. So mm-hmm. if you say, well, that didn't happen, then you've got to refute 70,000 personal witnesses right, right. from that happening, let, let alone all the incorruptibles, the saints who've, whose bodies have not corrupted. You know, you've got to say, well, that's just 
you know, probability like <laughs> to say that that hasn't happened. I mean, what's remarkable about Louisa is she had no formal education. So to mm. write profound theological truths, on, you know, something on the level of the summer theologi, um, you know, if you don't have a formal education, you don't really do that. So, right. and if you oh, don't yeah. eat food for decades, then, you, don't, you know, you don't live usually. Yeah. <laughs> normally you die if you don't <laughs> eat or you just sort of regurgitate your food, then, then yeah, that's, that's not normal. So you're, you're in a position where it's kind of, you really, you kind of have to believe, you know, you uneducated people don't write profound treatise, you know, profound books. Um, it just doesn't happen um, right. in that way. So it's got to be coming from somewhere. So, you know, I think spelling it out in the way that you do in this book is, is absolutely fantastic and really great for, for Catholics for, to get them off the fence of like, well, it hasn't been approved and, you know, we're skeptical of private revelation. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually, if you spell it out and say, look, here's the history of the church, here's how this fits in really well. Um, this is the, you know, church fathers who talked about God's will. Um, and, and here is exactly how, how it slots in. And, and, and in that way, people, you know, will have that light bulb moment of, spiritual discovery awakening um enlightenment um you know aha moment which uh which we all yearn for in you know to, to have a deeper union with with god and to know and love him more deeply so I, that's what i love about this book is is you're really um you're, you're really encouraging that and you know for anyone who's who's educated and well read um this is a fantastic book to to really go through those go through those motions and then when you I, for many you know, I, I studied history and you know I'd look at a subject but if I didn't know the context or the the context of the historical period was studying it didn't really make sense to me but whereas if you can present a particular topic in a way that you know this is the historical time in which she lived um, this is you know the tradition of how church teaching doctrine develops over time and you know this is the piece of the puzzle and this is where it fits then you provide that um for for the reader and that's that's what's so beautiful about the book as well so um yeah we, but this idea that you know we would we are never called as catholics to just to just detach ourselves from the sacred tradition we've been graced with for with 2000 years now everything that happens every legitimate development that transpires will be organic you know it'll it'll proceed from what comes before but if you think about organic development, I use this analogy somewhere in the book, the, the, the emergence of the flower, that's stunning to observe. That's, you, you wouldn't have even guessed that it's about to happen if you thought you were just watching a blade of grass growing. But that's not what sacred tradition is. It's not a blade of grass. It's a, it's a breathtaking rose. And in this spirituality of this, this incredible union of God that is living in the divine will, that's the blooming of the flower. And yes, it's breathtaking and extraordinary and astounding. But if you look at the development, you see how it is perfectly fitting. So I wanted to show that beyond any doubt. And, and, and the doubt, you know, there's plenty of false revelations out there. So I wanted to really take seriously uh, the, the hesitancy that a Catholic, a, a very careful Catholic might have. And we should all be very careful, especially in these days with so many false prophets out there. But I would encourage anyone to look, you mentioned history, look through all the history of the church. Find for me a single mystic in the whole history of the church who has had the degree, the, de the degree 
of verifications of authenticity that Louisa has had and still proven to be a fraud, you won't find a single example. In fact, I gave a talk years, a few years ago now and uh, at a conference and there were hundreds of people in attendance and I put the video online and it's had tens of thousands of views since then. And I said, here's, I, I showed $500 <laughs> on, at the talk. And I said, this money is yours. If you can give me one name, the name of a single mystic who has in the whole history of the church, seen this degree of verifications of authenticity, but still proven to be a fraud. I still, this is years later now. I haven't heard not a single person has taken me up on that. Yeah, that's five hundred dollars. It's that that was up for up for grabs. It's never been taken. So uh, you know, and it, there's nothing new under the sun. If if this was a thing, if, if it was a thing that mystics get declared a servant of God, have canonized saints as their spiritual directors, dedicating their lives to promoting the revelations, have Vatican biographies. I'm looking inside here and see if well, I've got it somewhere in my office. Here. Have Vatican biographies dedicated to the mystic, and still be proven inauthentic that's never happened and it never will happen so yes there's still approvals what we're waiting on we're still waiting for louisa to be beatified we're still waiting for the um official cdf stamped uh, edition and translation of her revelations sure but those things will happen mark my words and when they do louisa's revelations won't at that point suddenly become more valuable they'll be they're just as valuable now as they will be then but by dedicating yourself to this now, you are, by, by proclaiming this now, you're becoming one of the few who are announcing this message while it's still relatively unknown. You're, Jesus tells Louisa, you'll be regarded like the evangelists of the Gospels themselves are. You know, he says to Louisa, I'll paraphrase here, every time the gospel is read, the name of the evangelist is announced first. And think about the Mass. It's true we, that we... It's, it might seem weird. Why do we say the name of just, just some ordinary, this is some lowly man. They deserve that glory because they announced the gospel of our Lord before Christendom was established across the West. You know, before this was obviously like it, they saw our Lord, they knew he was, they knew this was God at work and they announced it. If you look honestly at what God is doing through this lowly, ordinary, as you said, uneducated virgin named Louisa, you will see the hand of God at work. And if you choose to announce that, you'll be regarded in a similar fashion as the evangelists themselves. I believe that. Well, you just think how God works throughout salvation history. You know, Jesus came into a stable in Bethlehem and, you know, we think he's going to come as a royal king, sort of triumphant entry, etc. Um, so how God works versus how we think he works is often, you know, parallel mm -hmm parallel opposites and you know god can use a very humble simple person to 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 have such incredible you know incredible influence look at the virgin mary look at the life of Lu louisa and and that was mind-blowing to me of just you know how much wisdom how you know, what a complete gem this teaching was mm -hmm. and is and it's just it's there but it's unknown and that's you know mind-blowing for me that wow we've got such incredible private revelation um which is which is there and um think of saint louis de montfort's book you know was kind of hidden for a hundred years right. and right you know that th this has been been around for a long time now and mm -hmm. you know it's really very ripe right now it's it's so applicable to what's happening in the world right now it's it's this is a new era um 
this is a, a holiness that is just absolutely incredible and completely life transforming and undeniably you know applying applying you know louise's um, writings and teachings in your own life is a completely life transforming experience and you know and and is living the faith in in a really deep level in everything you think say do speak act um you know consecrating your life to god in in a much deeper level and that that's what i'm just hit me for six to begin with but wow it, there's just so much and there's so much depth to, to to discover um tell us a bit about saint faustina and how that relates to how that relates to this book as well what what you've written about saint faustina in this book absolutely yeah i'm so glad you said that that it, it's it's the key to it will invite you even more deeply into everything that you already know you should be doing as a Catholic striving after sanctity. It'll be like the key that unlocks any mysteries, any confusions that you might have hitherto had. It will make sense of all of that. It really will. I can't tell you how many people I've heard tell me that same thing, that when they learned about the divine will, it made sense of everything else. So this is not some new age, some Gnostic thing asking you to leave behind what you're already doing as a devout Catholic. It's the very opposite of that. It is going to illuminate everything you're already doing as a Catholic striving after sanctity. And hopefully, if you are, a, a, and whoever you are, I hope there's all sorts of different people watching this, but if you are a Catholic striving after sanctity, you've probably heard of St. Faustina. She's one of the most well-known mystics today. And I think she is, um, I think Louise is destined to soon inhabit a similar position faustina also was a 20th century mystic you know she was born in um i think 1905 if i recall correctly so that was during this era of the gift of living in the divine will and if you read her diary you will see very clearly revealed in her diary the same exact thing this this union with god that exceeds what was available before it's still built upon it and it doesn't change N none of this changes anything that we would already be doing as catholics striving for holiness striving for the salvation of souls but it it brings it to a deeper level and that's what we see in divine mercy in my soul and i provide just a few quotes here in um in thy will be done from her diary where if you consider carefully what's being claimed in Faustina's revelations, you are stuck, really. You're stuck concluding that this is a new and divine holiness. In fact, those words, new and divine holiness, I'll quote Faustina herself in a moment, but before I even do that, I want to do the same thing I did earlier with Father Marie-Michel Philippon, and I want to look at an expert on Faustina's revelations, Father George Kosicki. And he's, uh, I think he's a saint. He died several years ago. He was a real apostle of divine mercy. He was his one. This was largely his life mission was proclaiming the divine mercy. So he was being that he was an expert in these revelations. You would think that he would know what the real core of them, the real essence and most important theme of them is. And obviously it's divine mercy, but also Father Kosicki writes, and I'll quote him directly here. Pope John Paul II recently wrote of a new and divine holiness with which the Holy Spirit wishes to enrich Christians at the dawn of the third millennium to make Christ the heart of the world. This new and eternal holiness is a maturing of the holiness Jesus revealed in the Gospels, 
It is living the fullness of the Lord's prayer. His kingdom come that the Lord reign in our hearts now by the Holy Spirit of the glory of God, the father, that his will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. And then he said, we live the fullness of the, our father by becoming holy through the Holy Spirit and by doing and living in God's will on earth as in heaven. We are to become a living presence of Jesus, radiating his love and mercy as we live in and by his will. By praying, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking for the grace that we need to be a living presence of Jesus on earth, a living Eucharist. So that's Father Kosicki's words there. And this is in his booklet. You can find it online. Be Holy, the Legacy of John Paul the Great, a Living Eucharist. And he's summarizing the main themes of St. Faustina's revelations in them as well. So he's convinced this expert, this apostle of the Divine Mercy Revelations, he's convinced that this is their key. We all know that their predominant theme is proclaiming the Divine Mercy for the salvation of souls. Absolutely. But the kind of the core, the heart of those revelations is actually the same as Luis's, this call to be a living Eucharist. And I talk all about the theological distinctions in the book, and those are very important. We don't ever want to succumb to any unorthodoxy here. But uh, because I don't have time to go into all of them now, I'll just take note of they're there. Our call now is to really be a living host. Like the Blessed Sacrament is transubstantiated. St. Faustina's revelations say that we are now to be transconsecrated. And that's not literally the same thing as what happens to the host, of course, but it's similar. It's Jesus, it's the, the divine will, the divine will of our Lord, which is shared with all three persons of the Holy Trinity, becoming our will. And that's what Faustina says in her diary. And this is paragraph 650. She writes, oh, divine will, you are the delight of my heart, the food of my soul, the light of my intellect, the omnipotent strength of my will. When I unite myself with your will, O Lord, your power works through me and takes the place of my feeble will. And if you didn't know better, reading Faustina and, and also the doctors of the church that I quote in this book, you'd think you're reading Luis's revelations. It's like amazing, the overlap here. But Faustina is saying, that there's this grace, and there's more quotes I'll read if, I can, if, if we get the time to, but there's this grace where the divine will can actually take the place of your own human will. And this doesn't at all deprive you of your existence, your personhood. This is not quietism. This is not Buddhism or something. This is a matter of will. Now, it's not a matter of your substance being replaced, your physical substance, like in the Eucharist, but your will is... It's greatest calling. The greatest thing you can do with your will is to sacrifice it to the divine will so that God's will can become the animating force of your life, just like your own soul is the animating force of your body. And that message is throughout Faustina as well. Absolutely. And there's so many uh, analogies and comparisons between St. Faustina's teaching and Louisa talks about living hosts as well. Um, mm -hmm. So so there's a lot of comparisons and overlap and the clear similarity and um, you know, the divine mercy obviously has uh, a deeper approval from, from the church. I've been to Krakow a couple of, couple of times, oh, wow. but there's just so many um, similarities in the life of St. Faustina as, as a mystic to, um, to, to Louisa. I mean, uh, book of heavens a lot longer than, uh, 
the same Faustine the story, but yeah, uh, Louisa I, lived a little longer. Yeah, <laughs> I think 80, 82 versus uh, thirty-three. So, <laughs> so um, can you summarize the chapter on the era of peace and you know what that means and how you know Louisa's writings kind of a blueprint for the era of peace and absolutely. Um, yeah. um, but what is for a one hundred one beginner? What is the era of peace? And you know it's talked about in Fatima and you know, mm-hmm. what what is the era of peace? The era of peace is the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. And we, there's a lot of, there's some people out there who think that all we're doing with church history, with, with this arduous thousands of year long journey is all we're doing is waiting for the end of time. And that's, that's a very silly way of looking at history. If we realize that God is the architect of history the holy spirit is the architect of history this is what he's doing his this doesn't work in every language but it works in english history his story it's god's story god is writing history that's that's what we are we are the pen in his hands history is being written is be his story history is being written through what is transpiring on earth and this story that god is telling through history i love that i love to draw the analogy to any human story a good human story that a human author would write it's got within its own pages what is referred to as the denouement the fulfillment the untying of the knot it is where the the etymology of the word comes from so that's uh i just like to throw that out there to give kind of logical a, a logical understanding of what's coming but really the most important thing is to realize that this has been prophesied none of this none of what we what we read and hear and what i'll say about the era of peace none of that changes the fact that heaven is what we're ultimately after of course heaven is our only ultimate home that's what that's the our supernatural hope the that's the formal object of our supernatural hope the that's what that's our only eternal home that's what everything is all about but god's eternal triumph which is of course seen in heaven is going to be mirrored on earth he's going to triumph not only beyond history but also within it and history itself is leading us towards that not openly and visibly only the opposite is happening right if you look at the news and Generally, we just see things getting more and more evil, but that's because God is going to make it clear that this is his victory, not ours. We do everything we can in the meantime to, to work for the kingdom, to advocate and, and, and try to hasten the social reign of Christ, but our efforts won't cause this triumph of God on earth. He will, and we long for it and wait for it and pray for it, and yes, we work for it, of course, but this era of peace you mentioned it's you mentioned fatima and um that's probably the most well known of the prophecies but really almost every seer and revelation fully approved ones saints blesseds everything they all announce the triumph of god on earth and it's just a tragedy that so few catholics seem to know of this I mean, I was reading the old Catholic encyclopedia. This was written at the beginning of the 20th century. And before this whole explosion of prophets and private revelation we've had in the last hundred years, what the old Catholic encyclopedia says, summarizing 1,900 years of prophecy is, and I'll I'll paraphrase, I don't have it 
don't think I have it in front of me. It says all of the prophecies agree. They all have one common goal to announce great calamities coming towards the latter times. And then the triumph of the church and the renovation of the world. The old Catholic encyclopedia continues and it says, they all agree, all the seers agree on a triumph more splendid than has ever been seen before. That's the, again, that's like, that's Catholic tradition. That's what all the seers for 2000 years have been saying is coming towards the latter times, which we're now in. That is Catholicism, pure and simple there. This this hastening, this longing for the era of peace, that's as Catholic as you can get. So it's really sad that there's some people out there who, when they read that, they think, oh, no, that's heresy. That's millenarianism. No, it's not. Of course, we only get Jesus's visible reign until heaven, but he's going to triumph on earth also. And I said that heaven is the proper formal object of our supernatural hope. And indeed it is. But guess what? You know, in philosophy, we distinguish between the formal object and the material object. The material object of hope is God's temporal triumph. He will triumph on earth. And that material object, it gives it gives strength to our supernatural hope for heaven also. That's what's just so mind-blowing about the Catholic faith is there's so many incredible parts to knowing God, loving God, the mystics, the rev- private revelation the last hundred years. You mentioned the explosion of... Uh, messages and just wow you know and I think for me it was the light bulb moment in 2020 and also being a Mm -hmm. Catholic convert just like you know kind of having this honeymoon period of just you know wow Mm -hmm. discovery and there's so much more and you know why have a myopic on a vision of what it means to be a Christian when Mm -hmm. you know we're given all these graces and you know this is like a child in a sweet shop it's there's just incredible all these messages and how they can transform our lives and if we really understand truly understand what god is saying and you know the context of salvation history what what god has promised us and what is you know what is to come you know in the era of peace etc so for me it's like you know wow just you think about the life of jesus how he came to his own people and was not (laughs) was not accepted by by his own people and the way that god works in mysterious ways and in the ways that we don't necessarily think, but that the graces that are available to us right now, it's we just have to ask for them. And it's yeah. like, you know, you have to just, want, you just said, yeah, not, not many people want them. It, imagine getting <laughs> to the end of your life and it's just like you didn't realize on what you missed mm-hmm. out on. You that was there nothing worth fighting for, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to realize kind of the, all these graces are available to us. And, you know, the tragedy is if we're not a saint, if we're not striving to to live for the highest degree of holiness that we know. And if we're not, if we don't know the, the, the depth of holiness that is available to us um, to discover it, you know, ignorance is, is, is no excuse. It's like, you know, why don't we discover the, the greatest opportunities available to us? I think that's the, that's the, um, yeah, you know, I think that's the context of, of your whole book, really, the era yeah. of peace. Um, uh, yeah, it's a flowering of holy, right. It's not, this is not a different message from the message of, divine will it's it's a it's a universal it's a worldwide flowering of that of that holiness and that's that's what it's all about is this holiness we're called to that you know, we're, we've got all eternity to enjoy ourselves that's that's what heaven is for it is a perfect super fulfillment of all of our faculties seeing god face to face perfect enjoyment forever this is the few moments we have before that starts to actually merit we can't merit at all once we die uh 
purgatory. If we have to go to purgatory, there's no merit there. There's just purification. Heaven, there's just joy. There's no merit. This is the only time we have to merit. And you know what makes merit possible? A lot of people don't realize it. There's what makes merit possible is faith, that we live by faith. We don't see, we don't, we don't directly see these truths. We have to believe them. And they're reasonable. Like I can prove them with, we can prove them with reason. We can argue for them with reason, but we cannot directly see the conclusions. Like I can see there's five fingers on my hand. And it's, we take that as a curse, but it's a blessing. It's because of that faith that we can merit for eternity, but you have to want it. As you were saying, you have to actually make that act of faith, which is an act of the will and desire it and ask for this sanctity. And we should already know as Christians, as Catholics, that sanctity is what it's all about. There's this quote. It's been the, it's been the, um, what's it called? The signature of my email for many, many years now. And Pope Francis actually quoted it in an apostolic exhortation also a few years ago. And it's from Leon Bloy, who uh, was, I think, a 19th century author. But he wrote, there is only one tragedy, not to have been a saint. That is the only tragedy. We count all these other things in our lives as tragedies, all these losses and pains. None of those are tragedies. There's only one tragedy, and that's not to have been a saint. So what should we fix our eyes upon? Not only be, becoming a saint, yes, but there's all sorts of degrees of sanctity where you need to be fixed, fixated like a tiger in pursuit of its prey on the crown of sanctity, which is the perfect union of the human will with the divine will. Absolutely. And it's, you just think, you know, we just had to ask for this gift and it, for it to be on the shelf. And mm-hmm. we spent our whole lives and we didn't ask for that gift. Like, right. you know, you, you sum it up with that quote of, you know, tragedy of not being a saint, that that's mm-hmm. exactly what, what we're talking about. It's just like, wow, if we, if we didn't ask for it, it's like, or if you didn't know about it, like, you know, here, here it is. And you've explained it in this book really clearly. 101. Tell us a bit 101 on chastisements, you know, like the times we're mm-hmm. living in at the moment, could give a sort of beginner's guide to just chastisement. Uh, you mentioned in the books, there's extreme situations we've experienced in the last couple of years. Is there more to come? And just mm-hmm. beginner's guide to chastisements. Yeah. So this, you know, th- this sanctity will reign on earth. It will. That's that's the Our Father prayer will be fulfilled. His kingdom will come. The era of peace will come. But if you look at the world now and you just imagine what the world would probably be like with God's will reigning... <laughs> There's a bit of a difference. Yeah, there's a bit of a difference between those two things you just imagined. So uh, there's only, well, I shouldn't say, there's there's a couple ways to go from point A to point B. One way is through uh, through mankind just changing and wanting God's will to reign and asking for his will to reign and desiring it. He's been waiting for a long time for us to ask for that, and incredibly few people are. So the other way is through justice. Jesus tells this to Luis all the time. There's two ways. This is going to happen. The kingdom is going to come. There's two ways it can come through love or through justice. And the details of how much each of those two halves are going to do, that's always that that's never set in stone until it's actually happened, which is why I'm constantly begging people to proclaim the divine will, to repent, to evangelize, to convert, to pray the rosary, all these things. We, we, the more of these things we do, the more we, the more triumphs we achieve for his will, like ending abortion, the more of these things we do now, the more we move towards love instead of justice. But 
there's obviously no way love's going to do it all because still, no matter what we do, most people seem to not want God's will. So justice is going to have to do whatever love and knowledge of his will doesn't do. And um, I hope I'm wrong, but it's saying like justice is going to have to do most of the work for us. So we're doing whatever we can here, Robert and I, you know, we're, and then other, some other people. So, you know, please share this video. We're, we're, the more we can get this message out there, the more love we'll do instead of justice. But uh, honesty requires us admitting that justice is chastisements, in other words, are going to have to do a lot of the work, a lot of this renovation of the world. And this purification, which is coming and which is already here in large extent, is going to purge from the world all those who simply, no, God is, don't say that God isn't, he's given them time, chance after chance after chance. There's going to come a point where the chances have run up. And this doesn't mean that all those who die are, are going to hell or anything. God will throw out all the stops and trying to save them from hell in the last moments of their life. But it does mean that there will come a time where temporally they're going to have to be purged from the earth if they won't accept God's will through love. And Jesus is constantly telling Louisa about the chastisements that are coming. In fact, that's one of the many verifications of her authenticity is how many fulfilled prophecies of chastisements have already happened. Um, Many of them have already happened, but far more are yet to happen. St. Hannibal, when he was reading Louisa's Revelations as her spiritual director in, in the 1920s, he wrote, there are many predictions, many prophecies of various chastisements and violence and earthquakes and all sorts of things in these writings. And he said, all of them have happened. All of them. And he said that, only knowing a small fraction of the fulfilled prophecies in Louis's revelations. He died before World War II. World War II was prophesied time and time and time again in Louis's revelations in the 20s and in the years before it happened. But that is not all that they prophesied. You know, I like I was just reading randomly. I, I read every day from the Book of Heaven. And just a couple days ago, I have a quote here on the screen. I was uh, looking at the passage from February 8th, 1931, for example, and Jesus talks about the three rounds of chastisement. I'll, I'll just, if I have a minute here, I'll read a couple excerpts. Yeah. Jesus said, my daughter, courage, my divine will acts in two ways, the wanted way or his ordained will, in other words, and the permissive way. When it acts, when my will acts in the permissive way, this happens when creatures with their free will, which they have, try to bind the hands of the omnipotent one. They forced me then to act in this permissive way. And my permissive will by justice and chastisement is blinding, such that who knows where they go to hurl themselves. And he says, therefore, I will act with my permissive will, since they do not want since they do not want my will in the ordained way. He says, my justice will pour itself out freely. And this is 1931. He continues to say, I am doing the first round of chastisement across all the nations. And then he says, I'm about to start the second round of chastisements across all nations. And then a few sentences later, he says, and when I have completed the second round, I will do the third. And where the chastisements will rage more, there will the wars and revolutions be more fierce. And I've never even said this publicly before, but and I've, I've seen this passage before and I've read the whole book of heaven a number of times, but it, I certainly don't have it memorized. So when I when I read this again a few days ago, I thought those are the three world wars being prophesied right there. 
the three rounds of chastisements, that there are three world wars to come before the era to prepare the world for the era. And that's speculation. These things are deliberately vague in a lot of prophecies, precisely because Jesus does not ever want us to be deluded into um, defeatism or passivism. You know, the details of the scope and the duration and the severity of the chastisements, it's up to us. It's up to our response. So we we never don't ever become a fatalist about this. Just, oh, this is coming. There's nothing I can do about it. We can do so much to mitigate the chastisements right now. But the the general gist of it, it's, it's coming. And I think at this point, with each passing day, it's getting safer and safer to speculatively conclude it looks like another world war is coming. And I think these are the three rounds of chastisements that Jesus tells Louisa about. And they'll prepare the world. They, they will purge whoever will not accept this reign of his will. What's for sure, there's a lot of craziness down the, down the road, and we've already, we've already experienced quite a bit of that. But we, you know, you're, you're right not to say fatalism is not the right thing you know mm-hmm. we need more victim souls out there and, and that right. you know we offer up our own suffering for you know to, to to transform the world and you know we can offer up what happens in in our lives to help influence you know the worlds and the lives of other other people so mm-hmm. um yeah you know and i think yes just you could do more- so much so much and that's again the, so to, uh, the most important thing to remember is just how much an effect we can have through our prayer our fasting our evangelization but especially our proclaiming of this very message this is this is the message that you could you could go so far as to say is the chastisements will be inversely proportional to the degree of knowledge of this message 100% yeah absolutely yeah. i would say that so you've got a section on a divine will for priests at the end that's really mm. interesting i haven't heard much of that before um, what is in this section and what, and what does it say? Yeah, the, the priests, you know, we're all called to proclaim this. Jesus says that clearly to Louisa many times, but he also says to her that priests, he's, a, he's especially calling priests to be the new evangelists of the third fiat, this triumph of the divine will, in other words. And I, I wrote a specific appendix specifically for priests because they have to be so careful. I and mean, we all have to be careful, of course, as Catholics, but priests have to be especially careful. They're constantly <laughs> under a magnifying glass. They could, they say one little thing wrong. Maybe they get a bunch of letters or a call from their bishop. Who knows? So I wanted to present a few pages dedicated to priests, how you can approach this message in a way that uh, won't offend anyone in his right mind. And look, eventually we're going to offend people. That's Jesus said, you know, woe to you when I'll speak well of you. But we still want to be as careful as possible. So I wanted to give them, uh, give priests some encouragement here, some advice on how they can ease this into their parishes and how they themselves can ease into becoming proclaimers of this message, even if they're not ready to just overnight be like full-blown Louisa everywhere. That's okay if you don't feel ready for that just yet. You can ease into this. You can get the same basic message across by sticking to sources that no Catholic could ever take any issue with you quoting. And also, there's this, there's this idea of being charismatic in your preaching. That's been a big theme for a number of decades now. Um, let me see. I have a quote here, I think, from actually USCCB wrote a document on this. The key motif of Jesus's preaching in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, is his announcement of the coming reign of God. This kingdom of God is the keynote of his mission, and he teaches his disciples to pray to the, our fa- to, to the Father, thy kingdom come. All effective homilies have this sense of urgency and freshness. 
revealing the startling beauty and promise of the kingdom. That is so conducive. Luisa's revelations are that. That's what they are. If you want, if you're a priest, you're wondering, how do I make my preaching more charismatic, more essential, more, more to the very core of the gospel? This is how to do it. This divine will message will make your preaching and your, your, your ministry in general so much more charismatic. It will, it will renew your whole priesthood. I, I've heard that from many priests, actually. Even I, I've heard from a priest in his 90s who, who said, I've been a priest for 60 years now or something. And this is what I've been waiting for the whole time. This message of Jesus to Louisa. So I think I would strongly encourage priests to give this a chance to see what happens. As soon as you feel ready, priests, and I say this to, to all uh, people, but especially to priests, start uh, looking at possible next steps. Maybe starting a divine will group where you read through the volumes, maybe uh, starting, you know, writing your own things for the internet, making your own videos, writing articles for your diocesan newspaper. The more we hear from priests proclaiming this message, that's when it's really going to explode. That's when everything will be transformed. That's brilliant. Uh, we'll wrap up in just a moment. Um, the appendix talks about private revelation as well. And, um, you know, obviously every private revelation that's been approved by the church had a period before it was approved. Mm -hmm. Um and there's a lot of misconceptions about private revelation as well. You know, um, you know, how do we convey how astonishing um, some of the messages of private revelation are for those who are of a more skeptical mindset? We've touched on this a bit before in the interview, but you know, how how can we um, refute some of the misconceptions that there are about private revelation? You know, like public revelation, what Jesus said publicly, private mm -hmm. revelation, what Jesus said to yeah, the privately. And, like, and it's yeah, it's so important to keep. You know, public revelation, the God, the script, you know, it, it, it was completed with the death of the Apostle John, of course. So that's our permanent foundation. Absolutely. Uh, that can never be altered. That can never be added to. Uh, and anyone who comes to you saying, oh, here's this book of truth or something. It's a new public revelation or the book of, you know, there's a number of this happens within the church and, and in quasi Christian circles. You see all sorts of people claiming they have a new Bible or something that will never happen. So Luisa's, Jesus's words to Luisa, they're a private revelation. But what I like to use with that is, is continue with that analogy of foundation. What kind of a building do you think Jesus is building with sacred tradition? And sacred tradition would be the 2000 years since salvation history's climax in public revelation, which concluded with the death of the apostle John. You can say, all right, he's just building a warehouse. He's a big, ugly, bland structure. Every level is the same as the one before it. But no, of course not. He's building a beautiful cathedral. And what's at the very top of a beautiful, stunning cathedral? Maybe a solid gold steeple. And that's what I would compare these revelations to, a solid gold steeple rising high above, just like any beautiful cathedral would have. So anytime you are confused as to how to properly interpret something, always go back to the foundation. Absolutely. I would recommend that. And look, there's no... I believe all of Luis's revelations. I don't think there's any uh, any heresies or any inauthentic parts in them. But some of it's not always it's not always obvious how to interpret every. There, there's difficulties everywhere in any mysticism. There's going to be difficulties. So in any difficulty, you just go back to your catechism and, and stick with that. Definitely, I would absolutely say that. But also understand that private revelation. Um, the 
right there in the catechism, it says, and I'll paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but that public revelation has not yet been made fully explicit and that private revelation is indispensable to that task. So this, this greatest holiness that we don't see it constantly clearly talked about in scripture, that doesn't, that, that's no mark against it. The time is now for that. This is the flowering. This is the solid gold steeple. This is the bearing of fruit. It's fully in keeping with what came before, and it doesn't contradict anything that came before. It's what all of what came before was leading us towards, this third fiat, perfectly in harmony, perfect, perfectly in keeping, perfectly, uh, full, you know, I, like I talk about Cardinal Newman, St. Cardinal Newman's uh, development of doctrine. It's perfectly harmonious with that. But yes, in another sense, it is new. It is a flowering. So just bear in mind, if, if, you're, if you're sitting there wondering, well, okay, I'll just, this is, sounds good, but I'll just wait until... She's fully canonized and there's a full CDF stamped translation. Like, don't wait for that. Not, as we said before, that's not going to magically change anything. The revelations are just as important now as they will be then. If you take an honest look at this, you'll realize that it's true. And it's never heaven's intent that their messages be ignored until they're approved. Just look at Kabe, look at F Fatima. That wasn't approved until years and years after it happened. Yeah. What, what that miracle of the sun? Do you think that the people there should have just turned, <laughs> walked away because it wasn't approved yet? Or Cabejo is the, the example I use in the book, right? The trashe, yeah, yeah. Cabejo, like Our Lady came to Cabejo with a message for how to avert rivers of blood. Her message was accepted by a few, but largely ignored. Wasn't approved. And then what happened in the 1990s? The Rwandan genocide. She came to prevent that from happening. And it happened. And the message was approved when? After the genocide happened. So, yes, of course, of course, church condemnations must always be respected. Of course, approvals are significant, but we can't just put heaven on hold until we until our own criteria for when we'll respond has been fulfilled. That's just another way of doing the self-will instead of God's will. As long as our consciences, and we must always follow our conscience, of course, as long as enough often, enough verifications of authenticity have been given to convict you in conscience that this is from God, you've got to follow your conscience. And don't be lazy in forming your conscience either. We've got to form our conscience and then follow it. You bet. And um, in page two, 353, you've got a checklist for living mm. in the divine will. So just to wrap up, I'll, I'll just go through those points. Um, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Be a good Catholic. Continually converse with Jesus. Do everything as an act in the divine will. Ask God for the gift of living in the divine will every day. Grow in virtue every day. Live the Beatitudes. Be a saint. Zealously spread knowledge of the divine will to the whole world. Reread and meditate upon Jesus' revelations to Louisa. Consecrate yourself to Mary, pray the rosary every day, wear a crucifix, miraculous medal, brown scapula, evangelize in every conversation, attend mass and receive communion daily, pray the divine mercy chaplet every day, uh, make a good confession at least once a month, love each cross God sends you, perform regular works of mercy, do a daily or weekly holy hour, engage daily in mental prayer, do spiritual reading every day, fast Wednesdays and Fridays, 
and ensure that your home is a holy place. Well, it's a pretty fantastic list, keeping us busy. There's quite a list. That'll keep you busy for a while, yeah. Let's <laughs> get through all that, then we're going to be <laughs> shining halo on top. But Daniel, it's been a real privilege speaking with you today. And just for all the listeners, um, if you haven't done so already, do go and get this book. Uh, Thy will be done, as we've been discussing. It really provides the context, not only of the Our Father prayer, but also of Louisa's writings and how they are in in context with the historical um, teaching of the church and uh, Daniel's done an incredible job in providing that explanation along with uh, gems nuggets of great teaching wonderful summary it's always a privilege speaking with you Daniel and just keep up the amazing work I'm looking forward to the next book <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> uh, all, all at one stage in a time it's it's really wonderful what you're doing and um, it's just a privilege speaking with you as well. So thank you thank so you much so indeed. Much. Thank you so much. Well, the honor for... is all mine. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much indeed for listening and look forward to seeing you next time.